1: Welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I have 3 parts for you today. In part 1, I'll review our winter transfer market or lack thereof, now I know I'm a little bit late on this, but it was just a matter of timing with the other parts. In part 2, we'll review our Primavera match against Spal on Wednesday, and in part 3, we'll preview our match on Sunday against Venezia. So let's start with the January transfer market. When all was said and done, Napoli made only one move, which was the loan of Axel Tuanzebe from Manchester United. To be our fourth center back. So that'll do for part one. (laughs) Just kidding, you'll be amazed at how much I've cooked up for such an inactive market. Now, I know a lot of people were disappointed that we didn't bring in more players, but if you look at our squad, when we're healthy, it's still one of the strongest squads in the league. I made this point online by comparing Juve's squad for the balance of the season to Napoli's. I don't think anyone would debate that Juve had the strongest mercato of any club in Italy. You could probably argue that they've had the best mercato of any club in Europe. They purchased Dusan Vlahovic from Fiorentina for 70 million euros which as I understand it will be paid over a couple of seasons. They also acquired Denis Zakaria from Borussia Mönchengladbach, which I think was an absolute steal. Meanwhile, Juve sold Rodrigo Bentancur and Dejan Kulusevski to their former sporting director Fabio Paratici at Tottenham. Those two sales nearly covered the cost of Vlahovic's purchase, but they're kind of complicated with options and milestones and things like that. And Juve finally offloaded Aaron Ramsey to Rangers. Now Juve is going to pay his salary, but there's also a loan fee, so that's still a pretty good deal for them. So you can't deny how impressive this window was for Juventus, but the reality is Juve desperately needed to make changes. They were just an average team heading into the winter break. They weren't getting the goal production they needed out of Alvaro Morata, and their midfield was still rather weak. But even with these improvements, I'd suggest that Juve's squad is now just as good as ours, and we didn't spend any money. We certainly didn't inject 400 million euros into the club through a new share issuance. So let me go through what I think will be each team's starting eleven going forward, and we'll compare them position by position. Now, I think it's quite possible that Allegri will stick to the 4-4-2, but just to make the comparison easier, I'm going to assume they line up in a 4-2-3-1. Starting in goal, Juve have Wojtek Szczesny and we have David Ospina. i take Ospina there. Szczesny is a good keeper, but his form has declined a bit this season, while Ospina has been unbelievable. I know some of our fans are not too confident in Alex Meret, but I'd say he's about equal to Mattia Perin as far as backups go, maybe even a little bit better. At centre-back, I have Leonardo Bonucci and Matthias De Ligt as the starters with Giorgio Chiellini as the backup. We have Kaladu Koulibaly and Amir Rachmani. I'd say that's pretty even. Personally, I think Koulibaly is stronger than Bonucci. Trying to be objective, I'd say De Ligt is probably slightly ahead of Amir Rachmani, but I think a lot of Napoli fans would rather have Rachmani with the season that he's having. I think you have to say that Chiellini is the better backup option when he's healthy, but he's missed a lot of games over the last two seasons due to injury. He's 37 years old now, so his body can only handle so much. Meanwhile, Juan Jesus has done an admirable job covering for Koulibaly this season. He's played the full 90 minutes in 13 matches this season, including each of our last eight matches in Serie A, which is more than any of us thought he would coming into this season. He effectively replaced Manolas as our third center back, which allowed us to save some money by bringing in Axel Tuanzebe on loan to be the fourth option. Fullback is an interesting one for Juve. I'd say Allegri probably still prefers Alexandro at left-back, whereas most Juventini prefer Luca Pellegrini. We have Mario Rui and Fauzi Gulam, so even though Mario Rui has been good this season, both clubs are pretty weak at left-back. At right-back, Juve have Danilo and Juan Cuadrado, but I suspect Cuadrado will still have to play further up the pitch. They also have Mattia De Scilio as a backup. We have Giovanni Di Lorenzo, who's the best of the lot in my opinion. Maybe you can say Cuadrado is just as good when he plays at right back just because of his contributions in the attack. Our backups are Kevin Malqui and Alessandro Zanoli. Malqui is just okay, Zanoli seems like he has plenty of potential, but he hasn't had much opportunity to play. Moving on to the midfield, I've assumed a double pivot for Juventus consisting of new signing Denis Zakaria and Manuel Locatelli. Our starters would be Frank Zambuanguisa and Fabian Ruiz. Zakaria is a bit of an unknown, while I'd say Locatelli and Fabian are about equal again, our Napoli bias might have us leaning towards Fabian there. In terms of backup midfielders, Juve have Artur, Weston McKennie, and Adrian Rabiot. We have Stanislav Lobotka, Diego Deme, and Elif Elmas. The backups are hard to compare because they're all very different types of players, but if I had to choose, I think I'd take our backup midfielders over Juve's. Moving on to the wingers, like I said, with Keza out for the rest of the season, Juve don't really have that many options. I've assumed that Danilo will play at right back so Cuadrado can play on the right wing, which frees up Bernardeschi to play on the left wing. I suppose Moise Kane could also play as a winger, but this is partly why it makes sense for Allegri to play in a 4-4-2. Of course, we have Lorenzo Insigne on the left and Elif Elmas as a backup. Elmas is a utility player, which has proven really important to have during the pandemic. On the right wing, we have Lozano and Politano, neither of whom have been particularly strong this year, and now we lost Lozano due to injury. We also have Adamunas, so we are definitely deeper than Juve are on the wings. Now, I've assumed Paulo Dybala would play in the number 10 for Juve, whereas we have Piotr Zielinski. I think talent-wise, you have to go with Dybala, but he too has missed a lot of games over the last couple of seasons due to injuries, so that position is a bit closer than you might think. Finally, Juve have Dusan Vlahovic now at striker, whereas we have Viktor Osiman. They're so hard to compare because they have such different characteristics. Vlahovic is your true number 9. You just have to look at his goal-scoring tally in 2021 to see what he's capable of. Victor has that pace, which can really stretch the opponent. Now, both are incredibly strong... We just need to see Victor avoid these freak injuries, so for that reason, I'd give the slight edge to Vlahovic. And then in terms of backup strikers, I would definitely take Mertens over Morata. Again, they're not the same type of player, but Mertens is more lethal, and he can double as a number 10. Finally, Juve have Caio George, and we have Andrea petania Caio George hardly plays, and petania hardly plays well. So taken all together, I'd say that with the improvements Juve made to their squad, These two squads are only now just about even. But injuries aside, we've been playing together all season, whereas Vlahovic and Zakaria will need time to adjust, the entire team might need time to adjust if Allegri changes his system, and in my opinion, if Juve don't change their system, if they stick to the 4-4-2, then they won't be as good as they can be. Most importantly, we have what is effectively an 8-point head start on Juventus in the battle for Champions League qualification – The gap is 7 points, but we own the head-to-head record, so Juve would need to make up 8 points over the final 15 rounds to pass us in the table. The reality is, it doesn't actually matter what Juve do for the rest of the season. We control our own destiny. We just have to focus on ourselves and get results. We got through our difficult spell of injuries. Just about everyone's had COVID, so it seems unlikely that we would have another outbreak before the end of the season. And AFCON is wrapping up this week, so for me there's no reason why we shouldn't finish in the top four. If we do, then we'll have a little bit more disposable income and we can bring in some new players. So that's a good segue to the summer transfer rumors because there have been plenty of those. I want to start with a question on Twitter from Stefano Camarota. He asked, Who do we sign to replace Insigne, Mertens, Fabian, Ospina, Gulam, possibly Malqui, and Tuanzebe? So starting with Insigne, I agree with our friend Ralph Biz on this one. We had Ralph on for the latest episode of Fortunapoli Worldwide. If you haven't checked that out, be sure to give it a listen. Not to toot my own horn, but it was a really fantastic episode. Anyhow, Ralph reminded me on that episode that he was the first to predict that Elmas will become the starting left winger after Insigne moves to Toronto. And the more I see Elmas play, the more I agree with that. If that's the case, then we would only need to sign a backup winger or perhaps a backup utility player who, by virtue of being a backup, would be less expensive. One player we have been linked to lately is Adnan Yanuzai. According to Fabio Canavo of Radio Kiss Kiss, Yanuzai is on Juntili's list. There are a number of reasons why Yanuzai makes sense. His contract with Real Sociedad expires this summer so we could sign him on a Bosman. He currently earns a salary of 1.8 million euros net, so his salary is affordable, he's in his prime at 26 years of age, and he's Belgian, so assuming Merton stays, he could help integrate him into the team. The one reason why the move wouldn't make sense to me is that Yanozai predominantly plays as a right winger, and we already have three right wingers in Lozano, Politano, and Unas. Now, Lozano can also play as a left winger, but that further supports the notion that we don't need to replace Insignia at all. If we keep Lozano, Politano, and Unas, we have enough wingers and we could use those resources elsewhere. As far as Mertens goes, I'm of the view that Mertens will renew his contract. Now, I know a lot of people are looking at the Insignia situation and saying that the same thing will happen to Chiro, but I think the situations are very different. Mertens is older, and he's publicly stated that he'd take a pay cut, so I think he'd renew for somewhere in the 1.5 to 2.5 million euro range. Now, if De Laurentiis wants to come with a ridiculous offer like half a million per season, then yeah, we can expect Mertens to walk, and he would be right to do so. Fabian Ruiz is an interesting one. There have been conflicting reports on Fabian. I saw one report that said that we are working to renew the contracts of both Meret and Fabian. Then at the weekend, Spanish media outlet Mundo Deportivo reported that Manchester United, Liverpool and Arsenal were all targeting Fabian. They claim that Ralph Regnick has put Fabian at the top of his list of priorities and that Fabian has already communicated to Napoli his desire not to renew Meanwhile, Corriere del Mezzogiorno are reporting that Newcastle United have offered 150 million euros for Fabian and Victor Osiman together. If that's true, I'm sure De Laurentiis had a good laugh when he saw that. I'm not sure De Laurentiis would sell Osiman alone for 150 million euros, let alone Osiman and Fabian together. But maybe it was a real offer because Nico Shkira reported that Napoli rejected a 40 million euro offer from Newcastle for Fabian, which would suggest that they were willing to pay 110 million for Victor. Personally, I don't think Fabian will renew. The club has been trying to extend him for a while and he's been pretty silent on the matter. If he does not renew, then we absolutely must sell him this summer so we do not lose him for free. If we do sell him, then Il Matino suggests a couple of options. One is Hellas Verona's Antonin Barak. The problem with Barak is I suspect he will be an expensive player to purchase and could command a significant salary. He actually has a similar profile to Fabian. He's a big body, but he also has a good touch. Barak is actually better than Fabian in the air as well. The problem with Barak is I suspect he will be an expensive player to purchase and could command a significant salary. Another option that Il Metino and many other outlets have reported is Empoli's Nadim Bayrami. I think he would fit perfectly in terms of the direction the club is heading. It seems like De Laurentiis wants to go back to the way he used to build the team by signing young players before they hit their prime then selling them high and reinvesting the proceeds of the sale. I'm sure that Laurentiis looked at our transfers over the last few summers and realized that spending more on a player doesn't necessarily mean improving your team. He broke the club's transfer record on Manolas and that proved to be a disappointing signing. Then we broke our transfer record again on Lozano and that hasn't gone as planned either. Finally, we broke our transfer record for a third consecutive year on Osimhen. Now, it's too early to judge whether this was a good signing but Osiman has had two serious injuries, each of which caused him to miss many matches. But when you spend more on players, the cost of injury or the risk of injury is greater. Barami is already a quality player, but he's only 22 years old, which means he could be worth a lot more in a few years. Moving on to David Ospina, his contract expires this summer, and there have been many reports, including from Gazzetta dello Sport, that Napoli have chosen Alex Meret to be the goalkeeper of the future. That most likely means Ospina will not be renewed, which many Napoli fans are not too happy about. Gazzetta noted that Meret currently makes 1 million euros per season, and that would increase to around 2-2.5 to million euros upon renewal. If this rumor is true, I think that salary would be one of the key reasons behind the decision. Ospina would almost certainly command a higher salary, which he would absolutely deserve for how well he's played but we know that De Laurentiis is trying to get that wage bill down. Obviously, Meret is much younger than Ospina, so I'm sure that would factor into the decision as well. According to the reports, De Laurentiis, Giuntoli, and Spalletti are all in agreement that Meret will be the goalkeeper going forward. I'm not so sure I buy that. Spalletti clearly favors Ospina over Meret, so I think this is a case where De Laurentiis has made his decision and Giuntoli and Spalletti are choosing not to disrupt the apple cart. That being said, I think people are being a little too down on Meret. I'm not saying he's great, but I think the potential is there, which is why Mancini continues to call him up to the national team. I know both Gattuso and Spalletti have gone with Ospina now, who's been great, but that doesn't mean that Meret is bad. I hate to sound like a broken record, but I do believe Meret will be more confident when he plays more regularly. Does he have areas for improvement? Of course. He needs to be more confident coming off his line, he needs to be more commanding of his area, and he needs to be more vocal. But those are all things that can be learned. He's still only 24 years old. Let's move on to fullback next. Stefano mentioned Fauzi Gulam, but I actually think we need to replace both Gulam and Mario Rui. I think we all know that Gulam's contract will not be extended when it expires at the end of this season. Before the deadline, Tuto Sports reported that Gulam was close to joining Lazio, that got a lot of Napoli fans excited, not because we want to see Gulam go, I think we all appreciate what he's given to the club, but rather because if he left, then that would free a position for us to finally sign a left back. If that transfer happened, if Maurizio Sadi took a 30 year old Gulam post double knee surgery after having already taken El Sai, I think I just might have put Sadi back in my good books. Unfortunately, it was not to be. Il Messaggio reported on Sunday that Lazio were not convinced by Gulam's physical condition, despite Napoli being willing to let him go for free, and Gulam ended up staying. Now, Mario Rui is under contract until 2025, but his agent, Mario Giuffredi made it clear last summer that Mario Rui wanted to play another season to restore his value, and then he would look for another club. He's had a strong season, so it would be the perfect time to sell him. We could then use those funds to pay for a replacement. The player we have been most heavily linked to is Hitafe's Matias Oliveira. Before the deadline, Sky Sports reported that Oliveira was close to a move to Napoli on loan for 1 million euros with an obligation to buy for 11 million. I suspect that deal didn't go through for two reasons. First, Hitafe did not want to lose a player in the middle of the season, at least not on a loan. At the very least, they would have needed a cash offer to sell the player in January, which Napoli was not prepared to offer. The second reason was likely that we were not able to sell Gulam or Malqui, which would have been required to free up a position in the squad. Otherwise, we'd have to terminate one of those contracts, which effectively means increasing the cost of the new player by the salary of the player you are terminating. So if Gulam makes 2.4 million a season and Olivetta makes 3 million, we'd effectively be paying 5.4 million for Olivetta because we'd have to terminate Gulam and still pay his salary. At the weekend, Olivetta was on a Uruguayan radio station, Sport 890, where he was asked about the rumors of a transfer to Napoli. He said all the right things. He said he's calm and focused on Hetafe. He added that he's heard of the news about Napoli and he is flattered, but they remain rumors. He said his focus is on Hetafe and Uruguay, and he will continue to work with humility. So I think Olivetta will replace Mario Rui, which means we need another fullback to replace Gulam. At the moment, the most likely option appears to be Empoli's Fabiano Parisi. Meanwhile, at right-back, I haven't seen too many reports on possible replacements for Kevin Malqui. All indications are that Malqui's contract, which expires in the summer as well, will not be extended. Now, Malqui is a backup, so that could be the reason why there haven't been that many reports. To me, the most cost-effective approach would be to promote Alessandro Zanoli to backup right-back because he certainly looks ready to me. Another player we've been linked to is Udinese's Nahuel Molina, but I'm not sure he's going to want to be a backup player. The last player Stefano had on his list was Axel Tuanzebe, who we acquired on a dry loan from Manchester United for the balance of the season. I'm not quite sure who would replace Tuanzebe if we don't make his move permanent. He hasn't had much time to play, so it's really difficult to judge, but I think Juan Jesus has done enough to earn himself a one- or two-year extension to play as our third centre-back. That means we just need a fourth, so I'm not terribly concerned about that position. So I've covered most of the rumors around the club by responding to Stefano's questions. There have been a few additional stories as well. On January 27th, the club went out of their way to issue a press release confirming that Luciano Spalletti is under contract with the club until 2024. This was in response to claims that the club was considering whether to extend his contract, which the club claimed were attempts to destabilize the team, the club, and its supporters, This was an odd press release from the club as is often the case. Up until this point, we were led to believe that the club had an option to extend the Tuscan's contract and that his future was tied to qualification for the Champions League. Finally, there have been a number of reports around some of our youth players and players out on loan. Nikita Contini returned from his loan at Crotone where he started seven matches He started the year on the bench, then he made those 7 starts, but really he only played 6 games because he got hurt in the 7th and then he ended up back on the bench. That might have been because Crotone only won one of those 7 matches that he played in. So Contini came back and then we loaned him to Vicenza for the second half of the season. Likewise, Michael Foloruncio returned from his loan at Pordenone. He was rumored to be joining Pisa, who are right up there fighting for promotion, but Pisa's president Giuseppe Corrado said Napoli were only open to a dry loan or a high purchase price. He said Foloruncho wanted to join Pisa, but Napoli would not give Pisa an option to buy, and they want to work for Pisa, not for other clubs. Of course, what he means is if Foloruncho goes on a dry loan, Pisa would be simply developing a player for Napoli, and then he would leave. As a result, Fuloruncio ended up going on loan to Regina, who's a mid-table team or a bottom half of the table team. Finally, there are a few reports with the Primavera. First, Giuseppe Ambrosino has signed a five-year contract with Napoli. He followed in the footsteps of midfielder Alessandro Spavone, who did the same in recent weeks. This was originally reported before the match against Spal on Wednesday, which we'll cover in Part 2, and then it was confirmed after the match. For me, this is an indication that the club is starting to focus a little bit more on the Primavera and I don't blame them. With the likes of Antonio Chofi, Antonio Vergara and Huberti Dasiak, we've got plenty of talent coming through. I'm hoping they all sign contract extensions as well. Meanwhile, Jonathan Spedalieri, who was a regular starter last season in the Primavera Due, has been loaned to C club Fermana. So there you have it. We made only one transfer in January but there was still plenty to talk about. That will do for part one. In part two, we'll review our latest Primavera match. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. Next, let's review our Primavera match on Wednesday against Spal. Spal came into this match sitting third from the bottom of the table, which is in the relegation playoff zone. The way the Primavera works, the bottom two teams are relegated, and then the two teams immediately above them have a playoff to determine the third relegation team. So this match was just as important, if not more important, for Spal as it was for us. The odds were definitely stacked against them, though. They lost their previous five matches in a row, and for the most part, they weren't close either. Before the break, they lost 5-0 to Sassuolo, then they lost 4-1 to Milan, then 4-1 to Roma, and 3-0 to Atalanta. Their first game after the break was a 2-0 loss to Inter, so in their previous five matches, Spal lost by a combined score of 18-2. Meanwhile, Napoli ended their three-match losing streak by beating Genoa at the weekend. However, we did lose a couple of players in that match. Daniel Hisai left that match after being involved in a head-to-head collision that was not dissimilar to the collision between Victor Osiman and Milan Skriniar. In fact, Hisai was operated on by the same surgeon, Professor Giampaolo Tartaro, who rebuilt his nasal septum. So Hisai will be out for some time and then he will also have a protective mask made for him. The other player we were missing was Koli Sacco, who picked up his fifth yellow card of the season in that match against Genoa, so he was suspended for yellow card accumulation. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Spal lined up in a 4-3-3 with Andrea Rigon in goal. Steven Nador and Pietro Sayo started at center-back. Mustafa Yabres started at left-back and Mark Singer started at right-back. Luca Mihai started in the center of the midfield with Luca Sperti to his left and Marco Forpani to his right. Samuel Noiro started on the left wing, Alessandro Orfe started on the right wing, and Tun Wilke started at striker. For Napoli, Nicolo Frustalupi made two changes to the squad he fielded against Genoa. He lined up in his usual 3-4-2-1 with Huberti Dasiak in goal. With Daniel Hisai picking up that injury, Musa Mane started in the back three alongside Davide Costanzo and Benedetto Barba. Alessandro Spavone and Duccio Toccafondi started in the center of the midfield. That was Toccafondi's first start since joining in January. He started over Colisacco. Enrico Giannini started on the left wing and Matteo Marchisano started on the right wing. Finally, the front three remained unchanged. Antonio Vergara and Giuseppe D'Agostino started as the two trequartisti in behind Antonio Trofi. So for the second consecutive match, Giuseppe Ambrosino started on the bench. So those were the starting lineups next let's get to the match napoli got off to a great start just past the first minute we won a corner kick and we nearly opened the scoring from it trophy played an outswinging corner from the right side and Marquisano was left completely unmarked in the area he put a strong header on target but rigon made a fantastic save moments later Mihai was cautioned for a dangerous tackle on vergara now normally i wouldn't make a point of mentioning a yellow card but i mentioned this one for two reasons First, he can make a pretty strong case that it should have been a straight red. Mihai was late to the ball and put his stud straight into the leg of Vergara. And second, about six minutes later, Mihai made another questionable tackle. Once again, he was late to the ball and this time he caught Chofi. He could easily have been cautioned for that tackle, but he wasn't. So I'd say that Spal were rather fortunate to play the rest of the match with 11 men. Now Napoli started strong, but Spal responded well and nearly scored in the 12th minute. Tocofondi conceded possession in our end and Spal countered. Sperti shot from the edge of the area was blocked by Costanzo but the ball popped up in the air. Wilke won the header over Barba and the ball appeared to be heading to the bottom corner but Idasek made a fantastic save to keep it out. That proved to be an important save because only a few minutes later, the Azzurini opened the scoring. Sperti took a heavy touch on the pass from Maro and Mane and Tocofondi quickly pounced on the ball. Vergara came away with it and he played a gorgeous ball over the top to Chofi. He took the ball down with his right boot, took one touch towards the 6-yard box and calmly tucked his shot inside the far post to put Napoli ahead. Now, this was a back-and-forth affair, so it's only natural that the next chance fell for Spal. Nador won the header on the Idasiek long ball and two quick passes later, Sperti was free on the left wing. He tried to go for goal, but in the end, his weak effort was straight at Idasiek. And the keeper made the easy save with the momentum shifting momentarily in spells favor they continued to push for the equalizer about midway through the half mihai took a powerful shot from outside the area but it was always bending wide of the goal moments later napoli nearly doubled their lead marquisano chipped the ball to vergara on the right wing he did well to dribble past Berti, and then he played a perfect cross with the outside of his left boot towards the back post janini connected fully with his volley and Bitrigon, but not the upright, so the score remained 1-0. Consistent with the pattern in the half, the pendulum swung back the other way with Spal creating the next chance. Sperti was dispossessed by Manet in the Napoli half, but Sperti pressed forward and blocked Costanzo's clearance. The ball fell kindly for Sperti, but Idasek was quick off his line, and even though he hesitated for half a second, he did just enough to disrupt the shot and most importantly, to keep the ball out. Then in the 26th minute, D'Agostino came close on a play that was similar to the goal. This time, Marquisano played the ball over the top. Like trophy, D'Agostino took the ball down really well and immediately shot on the half-volley. Unfortunately, his shot finished just wide of the goal. So the opening half hour of this match was pretty frantic and then things finally settled down for about 10 minutes or so. Neither side had an opportunity to score until about 5 minutes before the break. Sperti was called for a handball blocking Tocofondi's shot so Napoli were awarded a free kick just outside the area. Trophy took the free kick and very nearly picked the bottom corner but his shot finished just wide of the mark. So it looked like Napoli were going to head into the break with a comfortable 1-0 lead, but almost out of nowhere, Spal found the equalizer. The play started with a Spal throw-in, which Wilkie flicked down the line to Orfe. He made an excellent run down the right wing before cutting into the middle of the park and laying the ball off to Sperti. Sperti's shot was blocked by Mane, but the ball fell for Orfe. I don't even know how to describe the pass that he made to Wilkie, it was like a bicycle kick lob with his back to the goal. Wilke was really fortunate on the finish, he did not connect well with the ball at all, he actually kicked it straight into the ground, but not intentionally, it was more of a mishit. but in any event, the ball bounced up and over Idasiak and into the back of the goal, so after a really wild half, Napoli and Spell went into the break, all tied at one. The start of the second half was rather tame compared to the start of the first half, in fact Napoli looked rather lifeless and I genuinely thought that this match was heading for a draw or possibly even a loss. For about 5 minutes or so we were on our back heels and in the 66th minute Spal should have taken the lead. Vergara won a free kick near the right touchline, which Trophy crossed into the area. Not only did Spal clear the danger, but they immediately countered with a long ball to Orfei. He outran Costanzo to the ball and he had a clear path to goal from about midfield. Orfei only had Idasiek to beat, but after sprinting nearly the entire length of the pitch, he skied his shot over the bar. Perhaps that was the wake-up call we needed. We finally got our first chance of the half in the 73rd minute. Chofi dribbled toward the byline, cut back, and picked out Spavona at the top of the box. He fought off Mihai and wrapped his foot around the ball, but for the second time in the match, the ball struck the upright and stayed out. I think Frustalupi recognized that if he wanted to score, he would need to make some changes, so a minute later, he replaced D'Agostino with Giovanni Mercurio and Chofi with Ambrosino. That proved to be a stroke of genius. Starting a minute later, the two of them combined to score three goals, ...in 7 minutes. First Giannini played a beautiful in-swinging cross from the left wing... ...right on Ambrosino's head. Ambrosino made no mistake, hitting the ball back across the face of the goal... ...and into the bottom corner to restore Napoli's lead. That was his 7th goal of the campaign. And then 3 minutes later, he scored his 8th. This play started with an unbelievable slide tackle by Vergara... ...to win the ball back at midfield. He quickly countered and played Ambrosino through on the right side of the goal... Ambrosino hit the ball first time, rolling his shot just inside the far post to make the score 3-1. With the goal, Vergara picked up his second assist of the match. And only three minutes after that goal, Mercurio scored his first goal in a Napoli shirt. Once again, Vergara played a key role in this goal. Even in the 81st minute, he was still pressing high and intercepted the pass deep in Spal's half. He played a low pass to Spavona in the area. Spavone laid it off to Mercurio and he smashed the ball off the upright and in to put this match away. Now Spal added a second goal in the final minute of normal time after Barba conceded possession at the top of our own box. The ball was played through to Wilke and he beat Dasek to score his second goal of the match. This was the first time Spal scored two goals in a single match since their 5-1 win over Empoli on November 21st, but it was far too little, far too late as this match finished 4-2 in favor of Napoli. So after three consecutive losses before the break, we've now collected two consecutive wins after it. Six teams still have a match in hand, so the table remains a little bit skewed, but with the win, we moved back up to eighth in the table. Roma are still well ahead of the rest, despite drawing Lecce 2-2, which was a really surprising result. Lecce were fourth from the bottom of the table heading into this round, Inter and Cagliari remained 2nd in the table on 28 points, 9 points back of Roma, though Roma are one of those teams with a game in hand. Inter won the derby 2-1 and Cagliari beat Pescara by the same score. Juventus remained 1 point behind them after an important 2-0 win over Sassuolo who dropped to 7th in the table. They were caught by Atalanta who beat Torino 2-1. Meanwhile, Sampdoria beat Fiorentina 4-1. So we're starting to see the usual Primavera heavyweights, Roma, Inter, Juve, Sampdoria and Atalanta all rising up to the top of the table. We're actually tied with Atalanta and Sassuolo on 25 points and we still have that game in hand so it's more like we are 6th in the table rather than 8th. And had we played that match and won it, we'd be tied with Inter and Cagliari for second place. So things are looking bright again for the Primavera. The Azzurini will be back in action on Sunday to take on Hellas Verona. Hellas Verona are tied with Empoli and Lecce on 17 points, which is just outside of the relegation zone. So on paper, this should be an easy match. But as you know, nothing is ever easy when Napoli play against Hellas Verona. That match is at 10.40 a.m. local time which means for those of you in North America, you'll have to wake up super early to watch this match live. It starts at 4.40 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. That will do for part two. In part three, we'll return to the senior team and preview our match on Sunday against Venezia. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you
0: do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
1: Welcome to part 3 of the Forza Napoli podcast. We'll close the pod with a preview of our match on Sunday against Venezia. Venezia come into this match sitting 4th from the bottom of the table on 18 points. That's only 1 point clear of Cagliari in the final relegation position. Cagliari have had a fantastic start to the calendar year, picking up 7 of a possible 12 points in their last 4 matches. Meanwhile, Venezia have been struggling for a good while now. They haven't won a match in 9 consecutive matches their last win was a 1-0 victory at Bologna on November 21st after that win Venezia were tied with Sassuolo in 13th position but they have since been overtaken by Udinese, Sampdoria and Spezia consequently venezia were very active during the winter market first they purchased central midfielder michael cuissants from bayern munich he's already made three appearances for venezia which is far more than he played for bayern in the first half of the season then they made their big name signing of the winter luis nani the 35 year old returns to Sedia after four seasons away he played one season for his youth club sporting in portugal then he played three seasons for orlando city in the mls his last spell in Serie a wasn't anything special, he was really a depth option for Lazio, he was primarily used as a substitute, though he did make a couple of starts. It seemed like he was winding up his career, first returning to play for his hometown club and then moving to the MLS, so this was a bit of a surprise move, but I wonder if he looked at Zlatan and the success that he's had since returning to Serie A and figured that he could do the same. Nani made an immediate impact in his return against Empoli. He came off the bench in the 73rd minute, and in less than a minute, he assisted David Okereke on Venezia's equalizer. He also made a brief appearance off the bench against Inted. He was brought in to help close the match with the score all level, but Edin Dzeko scored a 90th minute winner in that one. So even though both appearances were off the bench, it's been a positive start for Nani at Venezia. Then on January 18th, Venezia purchased Maximilian Ullmann from Rapid Vienna. He also played against Inter, but it didn't go as well for him. He had some tough matchups on Venezia's left side or Inter's right side. He got beat by Matteo Darmian on the first goal, and then by Denzel Dumfries on the second goal. Finally, Venezia acquired striker Jean-Pierre Sam on loan from Young Boys. That was on the final day of the window, so he has yet to feature for Venezia. With all those players coming in, some players had to depart, unfortunately one of those players was Francesco Forte, he seems to be one of those players who excels in Serie B but can't quite break through in Serie A, he's been loaned to Benevento for the balance of the season. Likewise, left back David Schnegg was loaned to Crotone in Serie B and midfielder Don Heymans was loaned to Charleroi in the Belgian Jupiler League similarly right back pasquale Mazzoki has been loaned to salernitana who went wild in january in a desperate attempt to achieve survival but i think it's still going to be next to impossible for them as far as injuries go venezia definitely benefited from the international break they were one of the teams dealing with a COVID outbreak before the break and now they're pretty much recovered the only venezia player who will miss this match is their napolitano midfielder antonio Vaca. that's really unfortunate he missed the girone andata due to suspension and now he will miss the Ritorno due to injury. Moving on to Napoli, I already covered our Winter Mercato in part 1. In terms of the matchday squad, we'll be missing a few players for this match. Both Kaladu Koulibaly and Frank Zamboangisa are still at AFCON. Koulibaly reached the final, so his Senegal squad will compete against Egypt on Sunday. Unfortunately, Anguissa's Cameroon side lost their semi-final to Egypt in a penalty shootout. Anguissa didn't shoot, but maybe he should have because Cameroon's performance in the penalty shootout was one of the worst that I've ever seen. For those of you thinking that maybe Anguissa could come back early, that is not really the case. AFCON has a third place game, which will be played on Saturday. So at best, Anguissa would only be able to return one day earlier than if he had reached the final they will both be back for the Inter game, though. There were some false news reports going around that they would have to quarantine for 10 days upon returning to Italy. That's not the case. According to Corriere dello Sport, the Fiji Chi has an agreement with the Italian government that if players have a negative test when they return, they can go back to playing immediately. There are already a few precedents out there, Ismail Benessera and Frank Kessie for Milan and our own Adamunas for Napoli. Speaking of Unas, he appears to be close to a return as well. He's now negative for COVID and he was included in the squad list for the Barcelona match. Meanwhile, David Ospina and Chucky Lozano continued to represent their countries in World Cup qualifiers during the week. Ospina was in goal for Colombia's 1-0 loss to Argentina on Tuesday and he returned to training on Friday. Meanwhile, Chucky Lozano played for Mexico in their 1-0 victory over Panama on Wednesday. Unfortunately... Lozano picked up yet another injury while on international duty. I'm sure you all recall the gruesome neck injury he sustained in the summer playing against Trinidad and Tobago. In this match, he was taken off on a stretcher in the 67th minute with a shoulder injury. On Thursday, the club announced that Lozano dislocated his shoulder, so he is likely to miss one to two months. Finally, Axel Twanzibay has been limited in practice this week due to lower back pain, so we'll have to see if he gets into the squad. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Pablo Zanetti's Venezia will likely line up in a 4-3-3 with Sergio Romero in goal. Pietro Ciacaroni and Mattia Caldara will likely start at center back. Normally, Christian Molinato would start at left back, but he's 38 years old, so I doubt Venezia would start him knowing that Victor will likely start for Napoli. So I think we'll see new signing Maximilian Ullman at left back. With Mazzocchi gone, it seems Ethan Ampadu is the preferred option at right back. In the midfield, I think we'll see the same three that started against Ampoli. Tanner Tesman started in the center with Domen Cerngoy on his left and Michael Cuisance to his right. Finally, up top, I think we'll see Davido Kareke on the left wing, Mattia Aramu on the right wing, and Toma Henry at striker. For Napoli, Luciano Spalletti will line up in his usual 4-2-3-1 formation. With Ospina having just returned from South America and given the recent reports about Napoli choosing Alex Medet to be the keeper of the future... I'm going to go with Alex Meret to get the start. With Koulibaly still at AFCON, Amir Rachmani and Juan Jesus will start again at center back. Mario Rui should start at left back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo should start at right back. With Angisa still at AFCON as well, we should see Stanislav Lobotka and Fabian Ruiz start in the double pivot. Lorenzo Insigne is expected to play from the first minute, having fully recovered from the adductor injury he sustained against Sampdoria. With Lozano out, we should see Matteo Politano start on the right wing. I think we'll see Piotr Zielinski start in the number 10, and Victor Osman should also start from the first minute at striker. Osman was just fitted with a new lighter mask, which he will have to wear until March. That means Dries Mertens will likely be relegated to the bench. So those are our starting lineups. Next, let's get to our three keys to the match. My first key to the match is to use the weapons we have at our disposal Even without the players I mentioned, this is still a very strong Napoli squad. I'm expecting Insigne and Oseman to start, and in my opinion, this team is stronger with each of these players in it than without them. Oseman may find it difficult to create chances early on against Venezia's low block, so that's where we're going to need the likes of Insigne, Politano, Zielinski, and Fabian to create those chances and maybe even score. If we can snag an early goal, then the game should open up a little bit. At some point, Venezia would need to push for an equalizer, which means there would be more space on the pitch, and that's when Victor becomes a serious threat. Osimhen is going to be a handful for that Venezia back line. To say he's hungry for goals is an understatement. He's probably even more eager to score specifically against Venezia after what happened in the first meeting. That was a while ago, so in case you don't remember, Osiman was provoked into swinging his arm into the face of Dom Heymans and was sent off only 23 minutes into the match. Now, as I mentioned, Heymans is no longer with Venezia, so hopefully Victor exacts his revenge on the goal instead. Another useful weapon that I think a lot of Napoli fans are overlooking for obvious reasons is Lorenzo Insignia. Now, Football Italia released an article called It's Time for Insignia to Shine in the Final 5 Months for Napoli. The article was okay, but they expanded on the title with their tweet saying that he's been in poor form this season now. I'm sure some people would agree, especially those who are not happy about Insigne's pending departure from Napoli. But when you read the article, it's clear to me that their assessment is based entirely on the fact that he hasn't scored any goals from open play. In my opinion, that's just lazy analysis. Now look, I'm not saying he's had a great season either. He hasn't. Wingers need to score but they also need to be playmakers. Insigne is struggling with the former, but he's doing just fine with the latter. Perhaps it's been less noticeable with how Elmas has been playing on the left lately, but our attack is noticeably stronger and more fluid when Insignia is on the pitch. So I think having those two players back on the pitch from the start of the match, which also means having Mertens and Elmas as options off the bench, will make this Napoli side that much more difficult to stop. My second key to the match is that we need to make sure we stay sharp defensively. We know that Venezia are going to play the low block. That's how they played in our first meeting, even after Osiman was sent off. That means they probably won't have much of the ball, especially considering how we like to play. Against Inter, they only had 30% of the ball. Against Milan, they only had 40% of the ball. Surprisingly, against Lazio, they had 50% of the ball, but that was a bit of an anomaly. But I think our defenders are going to have very little to do, at least defensively, for long spells of the match. That could actually be dangerous because Venezia do have quality attacking players that can beat you on the break. We won't be the only team in this match with pace up top. Davido careca is super quick and he can finish as well. He's tied with Matia Aramu for most goals on the team with five. The other goal scorer on the team is Tomà Henri, who bravely rocks the number 14 with a name like that. But he's doing just fine. He has 4 goals on the season as well. Those 3 players account for nearly 60% of Venezia's goals this season. So we'll need to watch out for them on the break. Spalletti's done an excellent job setting up our defense to succeed though. We continue to be the team with the fewest goals conceded in Serie A. We've conceded 16 goals which is one fewer than Inter have conceded. And Inter still have a game in hand. One of the biggest challenges we had defensively under Gattuso and Ancelotti for that matter was that we would get beat on the break. Spalletti has done a good job of addressing that weakness largely through his style of attacking football. We like to keep the ball and we continue to attack even when we have the lead. And as a result, our opponents have less of the ball and therefore fewer opportunities to score. But Spalletti hasn't completely eliminated the problem as we saw with the goals Salernitana scored against us before the break. My final key to the match is we need to score at least two goals. I still have hope for Alex Meret. I still believe that he can be the keeper of the future but he doesn't have a great record this season in terms of goals conceded. He's made 10 appearances this season in all competitions, five in the Europa League, four in Serie A, and one in the Coppa Italia. In those 10 matches, he's conceded 13 goals. So that's an average of 1.3 goals conceded per match. Now, Four of those goals were in the Coppa Italia match against Fiorentina, and I would say that the team had pretty much given up after Fiorentina went ahead in stoppage time. But even if we generously removed two of those goals, he's still averaging 1.1 goals conceded per match. Now, I'm not a goalkeeping expert, so it's difficult for me to explain why that is. If I had to guess, I'd say it comes down to a couple of things. The first is something I mentioned in part one, which is that Meret's confidence is low from not playing consistently. I know people are tired of hearing that and I understand if you don't agree, but I think that's a big reason why at times it seems like Meret is fighting with himself. For instance, when he hesitates to come off his line, it's because he's debating with himself whether to go or not. For me, that indecision is a symptom of low confidence. I don't think positioning is an issue for Meret. Sure, he may have conceded the odd goal here and there because of poor positioning, but I think you can say that of just about any goalkeeper. Generally speaking, Meret is a technically sound goalkeeper and an excellent shot stopper. Now, people will say, well, if Medet is so good, why has he not been able to take over the starting role? For me, the explanation is simple. Ospina has just been better. That doesn't mean Meret is a bad keeper. It means Ospina has played extremely well he seems the more likely of the two to come up with that big save when you need him to, and perhaps that's why Ospina has conceded only four more goals than Meret, despite playing double the number of matches. Whatever the reason though, I'm expecting us to concede one goal in this match, which means we need to score at least two goals to get the win. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a 3-1 Napoli win. I'll give our goals to Victor Oseman, Lorenzo Insigne, and Dries Mertens off the bench. For Venezia, I'll give the goal to Okareke. Despite Venezia's poor record of late, I don't think this will be an easy match. Venezia may not have won in a while, but where they are in the table, every point counts. They'll definitely be playing for a draw here, so we will be tasked with breaking down that low block. Of those last nine results, three of them were draws against Juve Sampdoria, and Empoli, and two others easily could have been draws. They had that wild match against Hellas Verona where Venezia went into the breakup 3-0 and then conceded four goals in the second half for the loss. And against Inter, they conceded the winner in the 90th minute. Venezia scored first in that match as well. Stadiums are back to 50% capacity, so there should be a decent crowd at the Stadio Luigi Penzo, even if the average age is a little bit higher there. That said, if we want to have any chance of winning the Scudetto this season, we absolutely must win this match. I'm publishing this episode on Saturday before the Derby de la Madonnina, so I don't know the result yet, but it doesn't really matter. If Inter win, we need to win as well so we don't fall further behind in the table, not to mention maintaining the gap over those chasing us for Champions League qualification. And if Inter don't win, then we have an opportunity to gain some ground on them. We're currently 4 points back of Inter, but they have that game in hand, so let's call it 7 points back. If we win and Inter loses, we reduce the gap to 4 points. If we win an Inter draws, we reduce the gap to 5 points. Next round, we play Inter. So if we win that match, we could reduce the gap to 1 or 2 points respectively with 13 matches to play. So the Scudetto is certainly not out of the question, but it all must start with a win over Venezia. So that will do for this preview. Before I let you go, be sure to check out our latest Napolitan song of the week. This week's song is Derae by Tartaglia Anuaro. Andrea Tartaglia is another really interesting artist that's worth exploring. He's extremely talented, he plays multiple instruments, and he speaks multiple languages. He's also not afraid to tackle political and social issues head-on, so be sure to check that out. That will do for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at d 5 or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. At Forza Napoli pod. I'll be back next week to review this match as well as our Primavera and Femminile matches, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre!